Welcome, everyone. It is so good to be back together with you. Uh, I have to say, it feels a little weird walking out from like a green room. That's not the kind of church Waterstone is. Usually uh, pastors are worshiping with people, but to keep numbers uh, where they're supposed to be, I have to stand back and just listen to you worship. Um, And the second thing I want to say as we get started is uh, it is so good to be together worshiping again. Last weekend, uh, sitting in the back or up in the balcony, I was in tears all throughout the weekend because we were finally back together, worshiping together, praising God together, opening scripture together, doing all of the things that the church gathers together to do. And I had just, I had missed it so deeply. Um, And I, I was just struck by a thought that even though there's only 50 of us in the room, that the amount of praise that God is receiving is not lessened at all. Even though it can feel a little weird to be sitting this far apart from people, God is still glorified when we are gathered together worshiping in the space. So I'm excited uh, to be with you tonight. I'm excited to be kicking off a series in the prophets. Um, We're going to be looking at the book of Hosea, as Kimber just told that story. And uh, yeah, I'm excited about our time together tonight. But before we get going, uh, I just want to let you guys know about where we're going tonight, uh, because to be honest, I'm feeling a little bit of, of hesitancy around the message uh, that comes from the book of Hosea. And primarily, uh, I've, as I've been wrestling with it this week, I was thinking back to a conversation a few weeks ago that I had with Nick Lillo, our former senior pastor, who's now our missions pastor. And we were doing the last midweek connection uh, of the spring, and we were sitting on this stage having a conversation. We weren't back together yet. And we were talking about misunderstood and misused Bible verses in Scripture. And as we were talking about these misused and misunderstood Bible verses, uh, we began talking about Jeremiah 29 11, which is a passage of scripture which talks about the promises and the hope and the future God has for his people. And it's a verse that is often severely misunderstood and misused and misrepresented, primarily because the context of that verse of promise and hope comes in a context of exile. And even further, if you read in that passage, God is actually calling out the prophets because they are telling the people of God things that they want to hear rather than the things God has told them to tell them. And as Nick and I were having this conversation, I said, I I honestly, every time I get up to preach, I feel that temptation, that temptation to tell people what they want to hear as opposed to what God wants them to hear. Because everybody wants a word of comfort Rarely do we want a word of confrontation. And scripture, God's word, does both. And so as I told that to Nick, he gave me an answer that was both encouraging and, uh, if I'm honest, a little discouraging. He said, Paul, I've been doing this for 30 years, and I still have that temptation every time I get up to preach. And it was encouraging because I thought, okay, cool, I'm not alone. And it was discouraging because I thought, that sounds like a terrible way to spend the next 30 years of my life. (laughs) I don't know if I want that. And uh, so with that said, this is going to be my last sermon. And I'm not going to, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No. Um, Yeah, but that, that temptation to say what people want to hear rather than what God wants them to hear. And I I believe there's nowhere that that temptation is more prevalent than when we come to the books of the prophets. The prophets are like your crazy uncle at Thanksgiving. They're a little cranky and they're a little weird. And when you get into them, the message that they have for you are challenging and confrontational. And, and the, re, the, pro, the purpose of the prophets is twofold. The prophets serve 
to, to preach judgment to the people of Israel. And they also exist to, to preach hope to the people of Israel. Those are the two functions of the prophet, which explains a little bit of why they might be so cranky, because nobody wants to preach a message of judgment. I mean, nobody enjoys hearing judgment. Nobody enjoys volunteering for that. And then the proclamations of hope in the prophets always get a little weird. They lead to these really weird visions or these weird predictions of the future that the people of God are supposed to wrestle with in the hopes of the coming Messiah. The other thing that you'll notice about the prophets as we get going in this series is that they always present the people of Israel with a choice. And the choice that they present Israel with is really twofold. One is that they can restore the faithfulness to the covenant or they can remain unfaithful to the covenant in rebellion to God and face historical annihilation which seems like a pretty easy choice to make, right? On the one hand, all I have to do is be faithful to God and, and repent of the ways that I haven't been faithful. On the other hand, I face historical annihilation and conquering by all of my enemies. But when you get into the book and you, and you, you realize the choices the, the prophets are presenting the people of God with, you realize that, that it's actually not a simple choice. And we have to hold off on our judgment against the people of God, because what we'll see is the choices they are presented with are the same choices that we are presented with in our own relationship with God. And so the question is, what is the message of Hosea? What is the message and the choice that he is presenting the people of Israel with? And the book starts out in one of the weirdest ways you can imagine. God comes to his prophet and he says, I want you to marry a promiscuous woman. I want you to marry someone who will be unfaithful to you. For all the kids in the room or who are watching at home, we'll just say that, that this wife enjoyed sleepovers more than she was supposed to, okay? We'll just try to, to make it child appropriate. But this is how the book starts in Hosea 1 and 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married the daughter of Gomer and she conceived and bore him. A son. Now, what's interesting is when you see this, you, we have to understand that this is a weird ask that God is giving to Hosea. And it's not just this weird call to be mean to the prophet. It's this call, this, this call to performance art. This call to be an illustration for the people of God of what God's relationship is like with them. But don't miss the fact that when you look at this story, it is one of an actual marriage. It is a story of a person who loved his wife, built a family with her, and knows what it's like to be rejected. In fact, if you pay attention to the text, you actually begin to see signs that this family Hosea has with Gomer, everything is not as it seems. So it says that she bore a son to him named Jezreel, but then the other two kids, it's much more ambiguous who the father is. It's much more ambiguous, and it says she just bore a daughter or a son. And then you look at the names that he names these children, and he says, unloved or not my people. And they sound like the names of kids who the father knows are not his own. See, Hosea is not unaware of the fact that Gomer has been unfaithful to him. He's not some schmuck who's oblivious to the things that are going on. He's a man who loves his wife 
and knows she has been unfaithful and knows the children that she is having are not his own. And to make matters worse, after the children are born, Gomer decides to leave and she abandons the family. And she abandons Hosea with the three children, two of which are probably not his, and and he is left taking care of them while she chases after other men. And Hosea still loves her. And so he pursues her, and he tries to provide for her, and he gives her food and clothing and jewelry and tries to woo her back. And she continually rejects him. She continually breaks his heart and chooses other men over him. And the message of the book, why God wants us to know this story, is because that is the picture he is painting of our relationship with him, of Israel's relationship with him. A God who is captivated by his wife, who loves her, who lavishes gifts on her, who gives her everything her heart could desire, and yet she continually rejects him and goes and chases after other men. See, Hosea is one of the most vivid pictures we have into the heart of God. It shows the heart of a a God who is broken over the adultery and idolatry of the people he loves. A God who longs for the day that his marriage would be made whole with his people. And yet they continually chase after other gods and other things that they think will satisfy them more. That's the picture behind the story of Hosea. And we have to ask ourselves with with this vivid picture of, of a God who is brokenhearted at the way he has been treated, what did Israel do to hurt him so deeply? What's the charge against them? And we get this in the book of Hosea, that there's this picture of Hosea coming before the people of of God on God's behalf. And it's this image of a divorce court, one we're all familiar with, either in real life or in fictional settings like TV years or books or movies, where the lawyer comes before the court and presents the grievances of the, the, the spouse who is looking to divorce the other spouse to make the case for why this spouse deserves to divorce the other And in that setting, this is what Hosea says. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, and no acknowledgement of God in the land. No faithfulness, no love, and no acknowledgement of God. These are the three charges of Israel's unfaithfulness and the ways that they have committed adultery against God and idolatry. And when we look at the three and we begin to break them down, the first one, this this idea of unfaithfulness, we have to be careful not to over-spiritualize this term. It's not just a spiritual term. Remember the metaphor that we're working with. He is accusing Israel of infidelity. He is saying, you have cheated on me. You have broken the covenant of our relationship, and you, our relationship is full of idolatry. This is what it says in Hosea 4, 12. My people consult a wooden idol. A diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. This unfaithfulness, this spirit of prostitution, this adultery, they have been found to be unfaithful to God. And we have to understand that, that again, this is not just a a spiritual term. This 
The image that we have is one of a husband who recognizes that his wife has been unfaithful. The image that Hosea paints, it's a little graphic, but it's the idea of a, of a lover with her spouse thinking of someone else. And this idea that, that, that you're committed partially, but your, your heart is elsewhere. That is what the people of God are accused of. They worship God and yet try to worship other things in addition to God. So that's charge number one. They're unfaithful. They're accused of infidelity. The second charge against Israel is the charge of self-centeredness. Hosea says that there's no love in the land. And again, we can tend to spiritualize that, but the word there is hesed. And it's not just love for God. It's actually the word that's often used for love for others. It's the idea that the people of God, called by God to be the people of God, are supposed to love their neighbor. And what Hosea says is that they have not lived up to that part of the commitment. In Hosea 4.2, he says, there's only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. If you pay attention to these, you'll see that the last five commandments of the Ten Commandments are actually present here. In the last five commandments of the Ten Commandments all have to do with horizontal love, the love of neighbor. And so God is saying, you have not loved like I have called you to love your neighbor. You've become so self-absorbed, so self-centered, so focused on your own self-interest that you have forgotten to love your neighbor. And so that's the second charge. And then the third charge against Israel is not only are they found to be um, unfaithful and self-centered, they are also disloyal. And this disloyalty plays out in a really unique way. And it's actually really common in the prophets. But the, the idea is that they have given their allegiance to people or nations besides God. That they have come to a place where they are so absorbed with their own self-interest, with the things that they need in the world, that they will make deals with the kings of the day or other nations in order for them to provide their needs that they're looking for. This is just one example that we find in Hosea chapter 8. Israel cries out to me, our God, we acknowledge you. But Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent, and they choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves. And elsewhere, it shows that they actually begin to make deals with Egypt for protection or Assyria for protection. And if you know the history of Israel, it's just unfathomable that the people they would choose to, to cut a deal with for their protection would be the very people who had enslaved them. But self-interest is a powerful incentive. And so they give their allegiance to other nations and look for other nations and kings to save and rescue and redeem them rather than looking to God for their salvation and for their rescue. And so God says, you've been unfaithful, you have not loved like I have called you to love, and you have given your allegiance to other nations and other kings in place of me. And so for that, I have grounds to divorce you. See, and this is where I get uncomfortable. This is where that temptation hits me. Because the choice that Hosea presents Israel with is, is repent of your, your unfaithfulness. 
Repent of your infidelity. Repent of your self-centeredness. Repent of your allegiance that you've given to other nations and return to God. That's the choice that he presents them with. And I believe that is the choice that he presents us with as well. Will we remain faithful to the covenant? Will we repent of the ways that we have been unfaithful to God? Will we repent of our self-centeredness and will we repent of our disloyalty to God? That's what the book of Hosea forces us to wrestle with. And and to be honest, that's where I don't want to go because I would rather not talk about the ways that we have been unfaithful on the second week we're back together. I'd rather the, the people of God could just gather together and we could talk about all the good stuff that happens in our faith and all the ways that, that God loves us and all the ways that, that we can follow him. And, and yet Larry told me I had to preach on Hosea today. And so I feel this temptation. I feel this urge to, to just move away from the ways that the scripture might challenge us. And I'm going to try to push into that a little bit today, as uncomfortable as it makes all of us, because I think the message of Hosea is profoundly true for the cultural moment the church finds itself in today. Because if you look at our culture, I mean, is there any idol more prevalent than the idol of self? I mean, is there any idol in our culture that we worship more than the idol of self? I mean, we are a people who, you do you, whatever you need, whatever you want, whatever happiness you can find, chase after it. Make sure you grab a hold of it. Don't let anyone get in your way of your happiness. The only way we put boundaries on our happiness is if that happiness harms another person. And we're beginning to see in our society and our culture that boundary even begin to erode. That my happiness, my joy, my life is worth more than yours. And I can do whatever I need to do to get it. I mean, that is so prevalent in our culture. Augustine, he, he spoke about this, this way of living, this way of living where, where we're so self-centered and so focused on our needs and our self-interest. And he called it incurvatus in se. It's a love bent inward on itself rather than bent outward towards God and others. I mean, can you think of the last four months of our, our culture and what we have been through? I mean, what happened when we thought toilet paper was going to run out? Everybody runs and buys toilet paper and makes sure they have what they need. And it doesn't matter if that means I have more than I need and somebody else doesn't have enough. I have to make sure I have what I need. And that's with toilet paper. How much more do we worship self? I mean, how much is our culture and our society say time and time again, my needs trump your needs? The needs of my tribe are more important than the needs of your tribe. I mean, it's the very fabric of our society coming apart because we are a people consumed with self over the needs of others. I could list 15 different examples just from this last week of how we are focused on self. And God has called the people of God to be a, a people that have a different focus, that we place the needs of others above our own. That we are not self-centered. And when we are, he calls it idolatry and adultery. And he says, you have been unfaithful to the people I have called you to be. And if the idol of self is, is the most powerful idol in our culture today, I think the idol of power is a close second. 
Because the idol of power is the way that we make sure our self-interests are taken care of. And so like Israel, we make deals with, with principalities and powers of this world, hoping that they will provide the protection and safety and security that we need. We cut deals with people in the kings of this world, hoping that they will provide our self-interest. And that is a sin. That is idolatry. Hosea says this. He says, But I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt, and you shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. And we read that and we think, really, no God but you? No Savior but you? Like we live in the real world. We have to have practical interactions. How, do we, how are we supposed to not give any allegiance at all to the powers of this world? How are we supposed to live in the world and, and, and maintain our allegiance to Christ alone? We have to live in a practical reality where, where we live in the world, we need security, we need safety. People will look out for interest. You're telling me that I can't have anyone deliver me except for God? That seems to be the message of Hosea, that anything we trust for our deliverance and salvation and security other than God is idolatry. And God is calling us to repent. See, I think that this is actually one of the most important questions that the church has to wrestle with in America today. Where do we cling to power? Where do we cling to hope? Where do we put our trust? Because the moment we start cutting deals with politicians and parties, and nations that we think will provide the interest that we are looking for. We begin to lose our allegiance to God and trade the worship of God for something else. And I think it, it, it's an important question because every time we make a deal to win at any cost, to make sure that, that our side wins. The cost of the deal is always the witness of the people of God. Every time. Every time we shift our allegiance just slightly, the cost is our witness. And the people of God cannot be the people of God. We cannot be the people who speak prophetically into culture, who call culture to truth and justice and compassion if we have lost our witness by making deals with the powers of this world. Scripture tells us that, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus Christ. All power comes under his rule and his reign. So why do we make deals with the footstools of his throne? Why do we make deals with politicians and trust in their power rather than the power of the Holy Spirit for change? Why do we trust in political parties and systems that we hope will provide the change we want to see in the world rather than the power of the resurrection? 
Why would we trade that? And yet we make the deal. We make it again and again and again in our own self-interest in the hopes that people will provide what God has said should only come from him. God wants more than just our theological conviction. He wants our functional dependence. And when we cut deals, the church, when the church forgets who it has been called to be in the public arena, when we collude with the principalities and powers of this world, we compromise our integrity and our witness because a church in bed with empire cannot call empire to repentance. And let me push just a little bit harder because I think we're probably all pretty uncomfortable. And I'm guessing that when you came today to hear about Hosea and you heard we were talking about Hosea, the last thing you thought we were talking about was politics. (laughs) If we are a people who pray more fervently for God to make America great again, than we do for God's kingdom to come, we have compromised our allegiance. And if we, as a people, pray more fervently for God to restore the soul of America, that's Biden's slogan. You probably haven't heard it because it's less catchy. But if we are people who pray more fervently for God to restore the soul of America than we do for his kingdom to come, we have compromised our allegiance. If we think the salvation of this nation depends on the outcome of the next election, we have compromised our allegiance. And we have committed idolatry. Karl Barth says that the church prepared to offer blind and binding loyalty to someone other than Jesus Christ is a church which has already died the death of a thousand smaller compromises. Who have we offered our blind loyalty to? Who have we offered our binding loyalty to? Where have we been willing to compromise our allegiance? So maybe the choice that Hosea presents between faithfulness to the covenant and unfaithfulness to the covenant is not as easy as we might first assume. It's hard. And this this message comes from a place of knowing the places I have compromised. But it should be easy. I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, this choice should be much easier than we make it. Because you see, the, the story of Gomer and the story of Israel and our story, when we make these compromises, always ends in the exact same place. Slavery. Israel ends up enslaved to the very nations they gave their allegiance to. And Gomer ends up on the slave block. The men that she chased after who used her, and when they had no more use for her, they sold her into slavery. And so God comes to Hosea and he says, purchase back your wife from the slave block. And so he does. For 15 pieces of silver and a little bit of barley, he purchases her freedom. My freedom and your freedom cost 30 pieces of silver. Christ still pursues us. 
at great cost to himself, even when we are unfaithful, even when there's no love to be found amongst us, even when we have traded our allegiance to other powers besides his, he still pursues us, chases after us, and purchases us from the slavery that we have chosen. The Jesus Storybook Bible, it puts it this way. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. God's love does not quit, even when we are unfaithful. And I mentioned at the beginning of the message that the scene we see play out in Hosea is the scene of a divorce court where Hosea is bringing these accusations against the people of Israel so that God can, can give his grounds for divorcing his people. And what's fascinating is when it gets to the end of these charges and it gets to the moment when you expect God to say, and for that reason, I cast you out, you are no longer my people, I divorce you. God has a very different response and I would encourage you, if you feel comfortable, to, to stand and hear the words of a loving God. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give back her vineyards and I will make the valley of Acre a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will re remove the names of the Baals from your lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the, with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I'll respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and the olive oil and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved. And I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. The word of the Lord.